Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey team, Oliver here. This week I publish another episode from the recent Micromobility America conference. Laura Bliss from Bloomberg interviews Ben Beer, the CEO of Spin, and guest on episode number 73, should anybody want to go check that out, about where sharing is going to be heading next after the COVID-19 pandemic put the brakes on it. Spin is one of the more interesting companies in the relatively crowded field of micromobility shared operators, being owned by Ford and pursuing a slow and steady strategy focusing around things like charging infrastructure. It's a great discussion and I hope you enjoy it. In the meantime, I do want to thank our sponsor for the episode, Ubeek. Ubeek is closing the gap between supply and demand. Most shared mobility businesses are not profitable, as 60 to 80% of the demand is not met. Ubeek places the vehicles in the right place at the right time to meet demand. This enables operators to increase revenue by 20% within eight weeks, while also decreasing operational costs. How? By exploiting the full potential of the fleet, by using something called Street Crowd. Street Crowd is enabling over 15,000 citizens across 11 cities on two continents to contribute to the future of shared mobility. It matches vehicles requiring rebalancing and charging with crowd users, allowing shared mobility operators to automate operations. In other words, mobility operators have access to a scalable, decentralized operation that runs 24-7 across the city. Best part, it's plug and play, and you can get started right away. Get in touch to find out more by clicking on the link in the show notes. Thanks very much to Ubeek for supporting our work here at Micromobility Podcast. And with that, here is Ben. Let's go. Lots of startups weathering the pandemic and emerging with an even more important role in the urban transportation landscape since the pandemic. But many of the same problems that have been around since day one are, are still here in the industry, whether it's question of unprofitable unit economics, as we were hearing about in the last panel, uh, regulatory uncertainty, safety issues, and these things still require attention. So excited to talk with Ben about what he sees on the horizon for spin and the larger industry and the cities that they connect to. So just on this question of, of unit economics, right, I think there's can sometimes be a sense that because of spin's relationship to Ford, it's owned by Ford, right, a large automaker, that you might not have to worry about as much about something like unit economics. Is that the case? And kind of where do you see the kind of thinking on that issue moving across the industry? Yeah, I mean, we're nearly 100 markets at this point. And for us, you know, every single market that we open, you know, we don't have investors, but we have Ford as an owner, and we have to make a strong case for why we believe that market can be profitable over time. So we were a little bit insulated from the COVID storm and some of the challenges that some of our competitors went through, but we've still been laser focused on improving the core business over the last year and a half. You know, for example, taking our monthly loss rate down to about one and a half percent for scooters, which is an implied lifetime of like over six years. Now we replace the vehicles more often than that because new permits come up and we add new features like sidewalk detection and we want to bring new hardware to bear. But by reducing the loss rate, by moving to a swappable battery model, by figuring out how we can leverage an advantage we have, which is 
that we have all hourly employees rather than gig workers. We're focused on getting more efficient every single day because if we don't, frankly, we won't be able to grow as much as we have the ambition to grow. So is it a question of, of just kind of improved technology over time and kind of tweaks in the, in the business model that, that gets us to a, a world where you know, shared scooters are a big bucks business? Or we've also been hearing quite a lot about you know, personal micromobility, right? Is that kind of part of the mix? Definitely. I mean, I, I think it's a rising tide for micromobility in general. We need more people in the bike lane. So you know, everyone's seen the reports about e-bike sales taking off. I think that's great for the industry. That generates more political will to build bike lanes. It creates an environment where people feel safer when they're riding because there's density and safety in numbers. And on the shared side, I mean, we've seen revenue will more than double this year, so we're continuing to grow. Um, and the big trend that we're seeing, and I think key drivers of improving unit economics, is improving the nature of the relationships with cities and the public-private partnerships. So for example, in Pittsburgh, we have the right to be the exclusive scooter operator. And in order to earn that right, what we did was we partnered with a number, and you know this better than anybody having written the first story on it, we partnered with a number of other mobility providers like Zipcar for car sharing, Waze for carpooling, the local port authority for access to the buses, all integrated together in transit app, so it's available online through a seamless experience, and then integrated offline at charging stations. And we have more than 50 stations that we're rolling out across the city. So it's a much deeper public-private partnership where we're making long-term infrastructure investments. And then in exchange for that, we get exclusivity. And in that market, we've seen more than 180,000 trips in the last couple months, um, more than $20 in revenue per vehicle per day. Um, and it's one of our strongest markets, but it's also one where we're offering one of our strongest services to the community in terms of filling transportation gaps. And so we've been very focused since the beginning on winning over the cities, innovating in the service of the cities, and then that generates markets that are structurally better than a market like LA or Austin where it's just a free-for-all and nobody's able to make any money. And so if you have the demand, that's sort of step one, right? You need to make sure that you have demand. And then on the cost side, it's things like integrating systems that are task-based management systems that are more automated in terms of how our operations team can work that we're working on, rolling out deployment algorithms with partners like Zoba, where we're able to more intelligently place vehicles where they're gonna generate the most revenue and have the least cost. And then also innovating in terms of the vehicles that we're using and the operational processes. So electric vans, electric cargo trikes, moving to swappable batteries. There's a lot of change happening right now in the industry and we need to nail each of those aspects in order to get profitable over time. I'd love to hear a little bit more about the Pittsburgh program because the, the backstory of kind of how that came to be, it's, it's not just a new model in terms of the offerings to residents, right, of having these hubs where you kind of concentrate lots of different kinds of modes in one place, but also the model that Pittsburgh was trying to develop there, right? It's kind of a new, there was a, a request for proposals for a bundle of companies, right, to all kind of come up with this pitch or, or, or to kind of fulfill this idea of, of creating these hubs. And this was also in a state where scooters weren't even legal, right? So can you talk a little bit, a bit about the, the model of, of the partnership with the public sector in that case as well? 
Yeah, absolutely. So Pennsylvania is one of the last of a few states in the union. Massachusetts is another where e-scooters weren't legal. But Pittsburgh at the time had a transportation director named Karina Ricks, who just joined the Biden administration, who was very innovative and knew that they didn't have a ton of resources to administer a complex program. And so she put the challenge to the private sector and said, all you companies, why don't you work together and come to us with an integrated solution? And that was really a forcing function to bring Zipcar to the table, to bring Google to the table for Waze Carpool, to bring Transit to the table, and to bring Port Authority to the table since it was city-sanctioned. And now other cities are looking at that as a potential model. And it's not a sexy topic, but procurement innovation is really needed in order to bring these types of services to cities at no cost to the city compared to you know, the millions of dollars that cities like New York and San Francisco had to put into their bike share programs. So that's really exciting about the program. Another thing that's really exciting about it is that it's the first city in the country where we're testing out this concept of universal basic mobility. And so a number of families in the city are getting free access to all of these services, along with mode coaching, which teaches them how to use the different services. And then they're able to access them, and we're going to study along with Carnegie Mellon University and the Traffic Institute what the impacts are on outcomes um, from folks who can more easily get to a job or get to work or get to transit or get to the grocery store and have access to all these different modes, whether it's a car or a bike or a bus or an e-scooter, in order to best meet the needs of that specific trip type. And we've already seen that spread. So we're participating in a universal basic mobility pilot that the city of Oakland is administering. We brought in UC Davis to help with research and understanding the outcomes there. And then in Bakersfield, they actually got state funding. Bakersfield is not a market that you know, us or Lime or Bird would probably enter without some sort of subsidy. They were able to get a million dollar grant from the state agency in order to offset the price of an e-bike program. So we're able to bring that there, and now we're working on bringing a universal basic mobility pilot there with UC Davis. So public-private partnerships that set the companies up well, but also are set up to meet the needs of the community are another key driver of getting to a profitable business over time. And the cities are really aligned with us on that, right? Because they don't want to switch out operators every six months or 12 months or 18 months, they want to have something that fits in with their transportation ecosystem and that people can rely on to get to work every morning. Another way that companies are evolving and technology is evolving to, to keep up with sort of an increasingly regulated and savvy, I would say, uh, kind of public sector side of things um, is, is through technology with respect to stuff like sidewalk detection, right, and, and kind of parking issues. Can you speak to how SPIN is, is looking at some of the requirements that its, its city partners are creating? Yeah, so since we have this lens of being the number one choice of cities and innovating in the service cities across everything that we do, we really leaned into sidewalk detection. Once we found a partner in Drover that actually had technology that worked, we were very skeptical for a long time. But this computer vision-based approach that is basically able to sense, am I on a sidewalk, am I on the bike lane, am I on a footpath, and be updated really dynamically works really well. There's a real wow factor there. And if you look at other types of vehicles, cars, mopeds, Cameras are going to be part of that world. There's just so much that you can do with a camera from a safety and planning perspective. And so we have thousands of these devices that are on the street in places like Santa Monica, Seattle, Milwaukee. And it's exciting to be the first company rolling out this type of innovation. And I think you know, in the last three months or so, you've seen 
Tier do a partnership. You've seen Super Pedestrian make an announcement. You've seen Lime say that they're doing something. So there's a big movement towards this next innovation in the service of cities that the industry is rallying around. Now, if we're gonna put cameras on the scooter and have automated sidewalk detection, we need the program to be set up in such a way where that investment is worthwhile for us to make. So we won't bring it to a market that has 10 vendors, we'll bring it to a market where we're one of one or one or two or one of three because we're making a substantial investment in that market and adding cost to our model in order to serve the city. Can you say a little bit more about what the implications of the camera sort of vision are for safety of riders? Yeah, so a good way that I've heard it described is similar to ADAS and cars. So the cameras can be used to sense whether there's pedestrians in front of them. This isn't something we're doing yet, but it's a potential application. They can be used to alert pedestrians audibly of a scooter coming near them. They can be used to sense whether the rider is riding where they should be on the safest possible infrastructure. And then we also are able to tell where are people riding a lot where there are no bike lanes and then share that data back with the city to inform planning decisions that they're making. Thinking about the, the pandemic and its impacts on micromobility, sometimes something I find really fascinating, and you spoke to this in a panel I moderated earlier, is the kind of interplay between different modes and kind of what we learned about, you know, what micromobility connects to from ridership trends during the pandemic, and in particular how micromobility, especially bike share, right, really took off in New York and Chicago. This is like based on Lyft data, right? And the sort of reason for that probably being that those were already very transit-reliant cities, right, and cities where a fairly high percentage of the population did not own cars. So they're switching, you know, out of shared modes like buses and trains to bikes and, and probably scooters as well. We didn't quite see that kind of trend in places like San Francisco or LA where car ownership is higher and people are maybe more likely to opt to take their car instead of a, of a shared micromobility mode. Can you speak a little bit to that and kind of what the implications are in terms of future growth for the industry and, and kind of how and where it thrives? Yeah, I mean, I think we're all still kind of learning, right? It's clear that things aren't going to just go back to the way that they were before COVID, there have been fundamental changes to the types of trips people are taking, when they're taking them, how they're getting around. I think during the pandemic, you know, there was a big trend away from people wanting to be in shared air in you know, a lift or on a train, and that's persistent, and that drove some people into using micromobility. But we're still seeing a lot less commuting, and so there's more leisure trips, there's more trips in the middle of the day, there's fewer trips to the public transit stations than we were seeing before COVID, which is something that you know we want to change. We want that to go back. But there are permanent implications that I think everyone is still sort of sorting through now. Yeah, how about the kind of redistribution of, of traffic and trips across other times of the day? Is that challenged to spin and some of its assumptions around you know, how it manages its fleets? Because we have a model where we use all employees, we're able to adapt pretty quickly to changes in demand. So it does indicate that you need to you know, staff things a little bit differently. You need to ramp up on the weekends and during the peak times, and maybe it's not gonna be as big during commute time. But you know, as cities sort of go back to whatever the new normal is, that may change again and we'll be ready to adapt. Any final predictions for where the industry is headed in 2022? I think that, you know, the political will is there that we've seen all across the globe to transform cities, you know, away from just being focused on cars to being 
focused on people and other modes of transportation. That trend will definitely continue. Consolidation will definitely continue in the shared space. There's tremendous advantages to scale and being one of the major operators. And then I think personal and commercial micromobility are going to continue to be important and show a lot of growth. And I think what we're all hoping for, you know, when we come back from this for this conference the next time, is that there's even more people and more new companies in here, and that the rising tide continues to lift the entire space. Thank you so much, Ben. Round of applause. All right. Thanks, Laura.